0: Hi, guys. I'm Trish. I'm Sarah. Sarah and I are attorneys and founders of the law firm Lincoln Durr in Charlotte, North Carolina. Together, we've been practicing law now for two decades, which just kind of makes me cringe every time I say that for a long time. But we're using this podcast to share the lessons we've learned inside the courtroom, outside the courtroom as business owners, and just in life in
1: general. So welcome to Trying to Win. Hey, this is Sarah. Hey, I'm Trish. And this is our podcast called Trying to Win. It's about being trial lawyers, about having trial skills, and about life in general. And trying to run a business. Oh, yeah, that too. We are here today. The The episode that we're going to be talking about is the importance of listening and the reason that we're doing the podcast. So should I interrupt you? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> is because we are constantly watching lawyers asking questions at depositions or at trials, and they are so often reading from a script. They have a list of the questions that they want to ask and make sure that they're covering everything. And while that is very important, there's a lot of having their heads down. There's a lot of not making eye contact with the witness. There's a lot of making sure that they're getting ready for the next question. And oftentimes we see them missing opportunities either from – getting a nonverbal cue from a witness or not hearing the answer that they're getting that might lead to the next good question. And so, Trish and I have talked about that a lot in our practice. We talk about it a lot with the other lawyers that we have in our practice, and we want to make sure that everybody's doing the best job that they can in questioning witnesses in the legal field. So, we are very excited today to bring you a special guest Michael Reddington is an executive resource, certified forensic interviewer, president of Inquasive, Inc., and the author of The Disciplined Listening Method. He has spent over a decade conducting investigations and traveling the world teaching interrogation techniques to federal agents, law enforcement officers, private sector investigators, and human resource professionals Earning the Outstanding Contributions Award from Homeland Security along the way, Michael's diverse experience has led him to create the Disciplined Listening Method, integrating research and best practices from across the spectrum of business communications with the world's leading non-confrontational interview and interrogation techniques. He has facilitated over 1,500 sessions and educated over 15,000 participants from over 50 countries. His insights have been featured in over 100 articles and interviews and outlets, including Forbes, Fast Company, Authority Magazine, Real Leaders, and beyond. And he has conducted training for our lawyers and some of our clients in the healthcare focused world as well. So welcome, Michael Reddington. We're super excited to have you here today.
2: It is great to see you both. Thank you so much for inviting me to join
0: you're you. You're so welcome. I'm a, I'm a little intimidated, actually, with a forensic interviewer on the other side of my camera.
1: I don't like, I have to say the word interrogation makes me a little bit nervous. And I. so we're going to have to talk about that a little bit as we go through the podcast this morning, because I don't want my witnesses, particularly in a deposition setting where you're really trying to do a lot more fact gathering than anything else, to feel like they're being interrogated. Is there a big difference between, you know, how you to use those terms interrogation and interview?
2: Yes, likely. I will also say that I don't want any of my interrogation suspects to feel like they're being interrogated either. When we think about, I'm sure many of them have for the record, but when we think about what Hollywood has made us all think an interrogation looks like, sounds like, I can only imagine that how you feel about what Hollywood has done to the perception of attorneys is how I feel about what Hollywood has done for the perception of professional interviewers. What makes for wonderful drama on television typically doesn't result or create the results that we're looking for when we have to use the techniques in real life. So to your point, we typically refer to an interview as a fact-gathering conversation and an interrogation as still an interview. It's a fact-gathering conversation, but will likely be accompanied by an accusation as well. Really, both should feel like a conversation. It should feel like two people sitting down, having a conversation that results in typically the subject, whoever it is that we're interviewing, victim, witness, suspect, could be somebody with an unknown relationship to whatever the situation is. But typically the subject sharing sensitive information under vulnerable circumstances that could, and sometimes should, directly lead to consequences. And those consequences aren't necessarily jail time or financial or losing a job. They can be embarrassment, reputational, damage to family, lost opportunities, all of those other things that are worth keeping in mind as well. So that's probably a long-winded way to circle back and say, yes, the less someone feels like they're actually being interrogated, the better.
1: So what does it take just as the, at an outset? Because I'm sure a lot of lawyers feel like they're the most qualified people in the rooms to ask questions of witnesses, whatever they may be. If whatever role they may have in a particular matter, but what does it take to become a forensic interrogator?
2: Well, first, I have no doubt of the overall ability that most to any lawyer has to ask questions. It's just the focus or the approach we take on any given day. The certified forensic interviewer is essentially a professional designation. So people are probably more familiar with a CPA or a certified public accountant. But so a certified forensic interviewer is a professional designation. In order for somebody to earn it, they have to meet the prerequisites, they have to pass a rigorous exam, and they have to maintain their re-education credits after the fact. Being a CFI isn't necessarily a job in and of itself. It's a designation of expertise and commitment to moral, legal, and ethical techniques within the industry of professional interviewing. Well, that's Hey, so when we
0: talk about forensic interviewer, you talked about the certifications you have to get, but, but even going back
2: a little bit further, what does it actually mean? That's a great question. Certified forensic interviewer, I think the, the word that typically comes down to is forensic. So what does it mean to be a forensic interviewer? And when people think about forensic, it typically goes in one of two directions, for scientific purposes or for court purposes. So, really, for us, there's likely a bridge of both, but we aren't in forensics like somebody who's binged every episode of CSI on a rainy weekend. Like, we're not out collecting blood splatter and evidence and running computer algorithms that might not exist in real life, but look awesome on a television show. For us, it is gathering information and using processes in a way that will stand up in court. Every single time.
0: You said something about ethics to it. I know this for a fact that Sarah and I both had experiences with um, maybe like DEA agents and things like that. And what I have seen is, to me at least, appears that there are not always a lot of ethics, that they can tell you something that's completely not true.
2: When you say ethics
0: in your your field, what do you mean?
2: It's another great point. And to nerd out on the interrogation side for a second, and the laws may have changed a little bit since I was directly involved. So if this is a shade outdated, I apologize. So I don't believe it is. The most recent I was aware, there's a big difference between intrinsic and extrinsic lies or mistruths. So if I wanted to, and I don't do this and I never have, but to use your example, if I wanted to falsify that I have evidence, you left a footprint, a fingerprint, blood, whatever, That's intrinsic. I could do that. But if I wanted to threaten you and say, if you don't tell me the truth, I'm going to put your mom in jail. I already have her in the back of a squad car out front. Then that is extrinsic and illegal. For us, everything we do or or did, I don't spend so much time on the investigation side anymore, is predicated on the truth. Obtaining the truth. And the best way to obtain the truth, more often than not, across context is to help people save face and protect their self-image a more trust-based rapport-based approach that is void of threats that is void of promises that's void of any of this manipulation of the situation yes i have to help somebody not only rationalize maybe what they did said or no but also rationalize telling me that and that's where the saving face process comes in but the ethical piece is is huge. It really is huge. It's not about solving a case. It's not about putting a trophy on the mantle. It's not about a win. It is 100% of the time about obtaining the truth and using the techniques that help people save face and protect their self-image along the way.
1: Which is what we like to believe we do too. But I have to say, I'm getting ready for a big arbitration next week. And the lawyers on the other side are taking things out of context, cutting up quotes from emails that were sent years apart from one another to make it look like they're connected in the manner in which they're presenting evidence. And one of the things that we're having to prepare our witnesses for, so the people who are going to be interrogated, so to speak, or cross-examined, is you cannot assume that the facts that are laid out in the question that you are being asked are truthful, you have to assume that these particular lawyers are going to take things out of context. So, you know, make sure you have everything put in front of you. Make sure they show you the documents. If it sounds like they're quoting from something, it's a little distressing to think about that that happens, but it happens even in the legal profession, unfortunately.
2: I'm sure it does. Unfortunately, to your point, I was recently working with an executive here in the Charlotte area who who's talking more about business negotiations, but raised a, a very v- valid point. Some people are all about leverage and angles. Other people are about opportunities and relationships. And I'm paraphrasing him. I'm probably not getting it right. But if you are, not you, the both of you, but just sort of the royal you, if you are a leverage and angle player, eventually that's going to come back. Like eventually the leverage isn't going to work. The angles going to disappear. The relationships aren't there. You're going to be exposed. And that was a concept he was really working to teach to an audience that we had together that day. When anytime we prepare somebody to be interviewed, and I've never had to do that in a criminal setting, but I've done it a lot with people preparing for job interviews. I've worked a lot with teenagers preparing for college interviews. I have worked with people who have been a part of workplace investigations, kind of drawn in and then reached out and said, hey, how do I handle this situation one of the hardest things to do is to, when you, in any scenario, but specifically this one, is to stay calm, stay focused, and let the conversation come to you. Just because somebody else is trying to turn up the heat, trying to dial up the pressure, trying to speed you up, doesn't mean we need to speed up. It doesn't mean that we need to rise to that. And often the most unsettling person is the person who can't be unsettled. So somebody who is prepared to the degree that you're working to prepare them, that can stay calm, that can remember, you know, this person, I did participate in some media training once. And one of the things they drove home, is like the media is not your friend. <laughs> like, they're not going to let the truth get in the way of a good story. Their job is to create emotions and create angles and all of these things. So if you're talking to the media, you've got to understand that their priority isn't you. Their priority is a great story and that may come at your expense the same thing sounds similar here. So making sure that the witnesses are prepared, they know what to expect, but then also have a game plan. So, okay, when I get this question, although I feel like I need to answer it, answering the question is not my first response. Considering the question, considering the context, asking for clarity, additional resources, where it's appropriate, potentially answering with the question, like I'm not trying to teach stall tactics or distraction techniques, but getting the clarity that they need, and then answering in a way that is concise, that is succinct, that is truthful, but doesn't create some of those additional opportunities. And I feel like when people get nervous, I also feel like I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop after this. When people get nervous, they're more apt to provide information beyond what's been asked. And that information beyond is what an attorney, especially one looking for leverages or angles, is going to start pulling on. Because now I opened the door. So since I opened it, you can walk right in. So making sure that we're staying calm. And once we feel like we've gathered enough context, only answer the question that was asked.
0: Absolutely. Yes, we say this a lot. So tell us a story. We want to hear one of your success stories of of an interview that you did that where you got somebody got the truth out in an unusual or extraordinary way.
2: So you had me up until unusual and extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, I am very thankful that I was introduced to tremendous techniques and wonderful mentors very early on. And while, yes, I would like to think that in many situations I made decisions along the way that led to obtaining the truth, credit also has to be given to the techniques that we used. I don't know what's extraordinary, right? For me, I guess I'll go with one. And if you want a couple others, I've got some other ideas but there was one particular investigation where we were called, this is when I worked for the training organization out in Chicago, where we were called to participate because a retailer in the Midwest, a small retailer, an ATF auditing team showed up unannounced to audit their firearms because they sold firearms. And during this unannounced audit, the agents found that two firearms were missing. So the auditors interviewed everybody, didn't obtain any confessions. They handed it over to police. The police apparently as well interviewed everybody, were unable to obtain any confessions. And eight weeks later, my phone rings, the owners of the organization asking us to come out and try to resolve this because there were all sorts of business ramifications. Are they going to lose their license? Are they going to lose their insurance? There's all kinds of additional problems here. So to save everybody the long story, they literally wanted me, somebody from my team, it happened to be me, there that week. And I tried explaining to them that I was getting paid already to be in their town in two weeks. And I could save them a lot of money if we just waited two weeks. And they kept pushing. And finally, I literally had to ask them, can the guns get any more stolen? (laughs) At which point they paused and said, no. And I said, okay, let's use the next two weeks to our advantage. Let's game plan. Let's use the time, create perceptions, whatever. So... Two weeks later, I go out. There were five employees that had access during the time the guns went missing. So in all certainty, it was probably one of these five. It turns out that, again, I'd rather be lucky than good, and I'm very thankful for great techniques, Uh, but the gentleman who was responsible for taking the guns turned out to be a two-time convicted felon who was currently absconded from the state of Florida. I was not in the state of Florida. And not only did he confess to taking both guns without denying once, but he drew me a little map around his basement to show me where he had carefully concealed one of them behind a brick next to his fireplace. I thought it was very James Bond. And then he gave me the name, telephone number, and turn-by-turn directions to the man that he had sold the second gun to. Because I was in that town, we don't always follow up after. Our job is not to punish people. Our job is to get the truth, turn it over, and let the decision makers. But because I was in that town for a couple of days, I followed up with the detective who came to collect the statement and the employee. And he did confirm that both gentlemen were arrested and both firearms had been recovered exactly where this guy said they were. Um, So that was one for me that that does stand out a bit.
0: How did you get what everybody else didn't get? Obviously forensic interviewing, but I want to hear like the guts of it. What did you do differently?
2: Sure. And I'm going to make some assumptions with that. You know, I wasn't there. I didn't hear the other conversations. So I don't want to inadvertently start dump trucking people and have all of your ATF listeners be like, what Mike Reddington said isn't true. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it clearly, I wasn't there. My assumption in the first of a series of assumptions is that when the auditing team showed up and found it, they were obligated to conduct some sort of interviews. They were probably quick. They were probably direct. They were probably accusatory. You know, if we don't find out now we're coming back, it's going to be worse, those kind of conversations. And especially now knowing that the perpetrator was a twice convicted felon who wasn't supposed to leave Florida and we're currently in Ohio those approaches backed him into a defensive position. It's then likely, and again, I don't know this, the, I did meet the detective who conducted the interviews and he was very nice and professional with me. I would also assume that when he came in and conducted the interviews, not having a lot to go on, there may have been some, I'm not going to say he did anything unethical. But some of the tactics where we sort of have to manifest the perception of evidence and be more threatening. And again, if you're talking to somebody who's been down that road before, at least twice that we know of, really, you're backing somebody onto a playing field that they're comfortable. They've been here before. They know how the game is played. This is something they can react to. They've seen it before. So for us coming in, and I had this reinforced by somebody I worked with years ago who used to run the gang task force for the city of Chicago. So he was busy. And one of the things that he told me was that in his career, he found that the non-confrontational approaches worked so much better with the gang members than the confrontational approaches because the gang members had been dealing with confrontation their entire life. I mean, that's like ordering French fries. If this is what you want to do today, okay, let's do it. It's fine. When they were treated with respect and it wasn't respect through fear, it was respect through just two human beings having a conversation. Not only did it catch him off guard, and they didn't have a defense for that, but now as they're trying to adjust to being treated in a way that they weren't expecting, they end up sharing more information. It was really that same approach. And this guy was nothing but professional and courteous to me the whole time. I mean, there were no issues anywhere. But my assumption is I didn't come out of the gate and accuse him. I didn't come out of the gate and threaten him. I came out of the gate by asking him to tell me a little bit about himself. And then after building a little bit of rapport, I honestly, after going back and watched the video, spent too much time, if I must confess, but I went through a portion of really an educational conversation where I just walked them through, hey, this is why we come in and this is what we see and this is how we're able to find out things that happen and this is why good people make bad decisions and some of the pressures that they feel. Really for you to break it down into, free, into phases, we built rapport. Then I built credibility, not by telling him what I know he did, but what our role typically entails. Then I allowed him to save face and protect his self-image by illustrating that sometimes people make decisions they wish they could have back, which now allows him to go through the process of, how do I save face and protect my self-image? Because I do believe the truth is known. So once I felt like he was ready, the first question I asked him was, I said, let me ask you this, what's the most expensive item you've ever taken from the organization? And he literally exhaled and looked straight down. So I came back with an exaggeration, which honestly was too high. The guns were worth, what, five, six, seven hundred bucks a piece, something like that. And I came back out of habit and said, it wasn't $10,000, was it? That was way too high. That was a mistake on my part. But thankfully, he looked right at me, shook his head and said, no, it was a gun. Wow. And, And we were off and working after that. And then for me, one of the questions that I really try to avoid ever asking anybody is why did you do it? Because that comes across as an accusation. It comes across as an attack. We might not necessarily think that. Even I have a five-year-old son. A lot has changed since we've last seen each other. And with him, I try not to ask him, do you know? I try to ask him, has anyone told you or has anyone showed you? Because I don't want him to be embarrassed that he doesn't know. He's five. He's not supposed to know lots of stuff yet. It's cool when he does. So instead of asking somebody, why did you do it? I like to ask people, why did you feel that you needed to do it because that allows them to walk themselves down a path, pull out an excuse. It's not their fault. They didn't choose if Something else was going on. And again, I'm very thankful for great techniques, but he looked at me and said, it's exactly like you said, the opportunity was there and I needed the money. And we were off and running after that.
1: If you could pinpoint two skills that a good interviewer should have, what would those
2: two skills be? The first one is the ability to embrace the totality of the human experience. And I feel like that eludes a lot of people. It's very easy. I I train jujitsu here and I've got a teammate who's a police officer. and He's a great guy. And we were out socially recently and pointed somebody out. Yeah, we know him. He's a problem. And then somebody else starts talking about the same guy and starts explaining his living conditions while he lives by himself. He has all these other issues. Now, My friend, who's the police officer, isn't wrong. The guy clearly has been a problem. But is he a problem? Or has his situation and how he expects people to treat him added to the problem? And both of these things can be true at the same time. So from an interviewing standpoint, how do we embrace the totality of the human experience? How do we look to connect with somebody not as right or wrong, good or evil, your team, my team, but just another human being? with a set of emotional experiences and life experiences that the more we can help them feel like it's okay to be vulnerable, they're not being judged, they're not being embarrassed, they're more they're willing to share information. So that would be one. And an offshoot of that would be situational awareness, really keeping in mind all of the factors that are impacting this conversation. So the totality of the ex- human experience and situational awareness would be one. And the second, and I don't know how prevalent this is with attorneys, is patience. One of the things that we try to preach is allow the conversation to come to you. Getting back to reviewing my interrogations with one of the co-founders of my former company, he was watching an interrogation with me that I thought went quite well. It ended in a written confession, which included more that we knew that was going in. I felt like it went pretty well. And at one point he pauses the video and looks at me and he was all, I love this man, he's like an uncle to me. But he was always very like, Thoughtful and intentional with what he said. So he kind of looks at me and he pauses. He's like, Michael, what are you doing? And in the back of my mind, I want to be like, ah, getting a confession.
0: Winning. But he looks at me,
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he looks at me and he says, You sound too needy. The more needy you sound, the more motivated they are to withhold information. And that's one of those little comments that stuck with me 15 years, give or take at this point. Anytime we need to obtain information from somebody, they are in control of this conversation, not us. And the more we try to enforce control, the more we're going to force them to fight for it on their end. And now we make the winning joke, but they can literally win by not giving us anything, even if it makes their situation worse. Well, you didn't get the information from me, so I can go away feeling better about myself. So by being patient and allowing the conversation to come to us, we learn more. Listening equals learning. If we're not learning, we're not listening. The more we allow somebody to talk, the more we learn, the more we can understand, the more we can engage. There was the interrupt joke earlier, which was very well played, that there's there's research that shows that when we engage in a conversation, the majority of the time we start talking before we fully think through what we're going to say. And our internal monologue runs roughly four times faster than our ability to speak out loud. So yes, Tricia, to your point, if we cut somebody off, it looks like we're not listening and we're imposing control and all of those things. But we also likely stop ourselves from getting the most important information in their statement. Because if they're talking and thinking at the same time, there's a reasonable likelihood that the most important information is gonna come at the back end of what they're saying because they're building it as they talk. It's not necessarily going to come at the front end as well. So I'll pause there again. I wanna try to keep my geek on a leash I would start with, and we can get into observation and questioning and some of those things if you want, but really embracing the totality of the human experience, increasing situational awareness and being patient, letting the conversation come to you.
0: Look at that. He like just made three points like that, got out. Like it was like an English essay. It's perfect. Well, I want to ask about this one. You read all these things online about like, how do you tell if somebody's lying? This whole looking up and looking down and all this other stuff. Talk to us a little bit about observing Uh, body language and what you believe about that, what you found about people who lie. Thank
2: you. Well, we know that everything on the internet is always true, (laughs) so we should just be happy with whatever we read. The scientific community is clear on this. There is no single behavior that's always indicative of truth or deception. None. It doesn't exist. There is some research that shows the behavior that comes the closest to being tied to deception is pupil dilation. It's still not a hundred percent, but if you're having a conversation with someone where you feel like you can just stare at their pupils closely, you know, I'm not sure how comfortable or productive. That would be awkward. Yes. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. How, and how, how can you even tell be. if
1: they're really dilating or not? Maybe there was a change in the light in the room. Seriously. Like, I mean, I don't even know. Dark brown.
2: <laughs> Or they're on medication or they're tired. I mean, who knows, right? Right. (laughs) And and that's where the situational awareness comes in. So there was a a man named Charles Bond did several global research studies into what are the most common myths related to deception around the world. And to your point, Tricia, globally taking all cultural differences into effect, the number one myth associated with deception globally is eye contact, that people either avert eye contact or look in a certain direction when they're being dishonest. And again, the scientific community is in unison. It couldn't be anything further from the truth. There is no correlation whatsoever to breaking eye contact and or looking to the right or the left when somebody is being dishonest. I believe Paul Ekman refers to them as the Othello error and the Brokaw error, or the Brokaw hazard, I think he calls it. But they both tie into the fact that often we assume behavior we assume behavior that indicates discomfort to mean deception. And we fail to realize that there are some dishonest people in the world that are super comfortable being dishonest and therefore will show us none of the behaviors that we're typically looking for. There are also people and situations in this world that will be very nervous telling us the truth. The person with the most nervous behavior who I've ever interviewed in my entire career was innocent and I knew she was innocent before I got there. She literally wasn't managing the facility when the thefts occurred but I had to talk with her first to verify little things like schedule and accessibility and procedures just to make sure that I knew I had the baseline before I went in. Well, the we were going, we we're down in Miami. The VP of HR came down from New York. I came down from Chicago. Imagine being a new general manager coming to the front door with your coffee in your hand that you haven't even drank yet. Seeing the VP of HR out of New York with someone you've never seen before opening the door saying, good morning to your VP. And your VP says, good morning. I'm here with Michael Reddington. He's a certified forensic interview and he has some questions for you this morning about the thefts. Oh, whoops. I'm literally standing next to her saying, is there a reset button anywhere? Like, can, (laughs) can I walk away and come back? Can we do this over? She was so nervous. She was literally shaking. Her teeth were chattering. Like, thankfully she went to BU. So growing up in the Boston area, I recognized the picture behind her desk and we talked about the green line in Kenmore Square and whatever and got her to calm down. So I should probably get back to answering your question. I apologize. No, this is how it works. When we are evaluating communication, which we should be doing, especially people in your field, I think I heard Sarah use the word cue earlier, whether you want to call it a cue or a clue or a red flag or an alert signal, whatever phrase you want to use. Really what we want to be observing for are fluctuations in somebody's comfort level. While they are talking, does their comfort level change? Do they all of a sudden look a lot more uncomfortable, or do they all of a sudden look a lot more comfortable? When we see those comfort level change, we immediately want to ask ourselves, why, what just happened? If somebody is talking and their volume drops, their speed slows down, their pauses get a lot longer. They start showing us some of these nonverbal indications of nervousness. Could it mean they're lying? Maybe. Does it more likely mean that there's some level of discomfort with this part in the story that they're telling? Yes. And is that discomfort dishonesty? Is it embarrassment? Is there somebody in the courtroom that they're worried is going to be angry or retaliate against them if they hear them say it? Like All of these other things could be impacting their behavior change. And all too often we just think about the nervous. Oh, look, he's nervous. He's falling apart. He must be lying. Look at the other ones too. If all of a sudden somebody's biting down on their smile and they're really cool answering a question, we might have just lobbed them a softball. This is one they're prepared for. This is one that they've been asked before. I have to give my brother credit on this one. You didn't ask me the question the right way. So you gave me an escape and now I'm happy because I can take this escape. So even looking for some of the comfort changes in the positive direction as well, And that's where that situational awareness really comes back into play, is are we looking and listening for those signs of discomfort? And what does that mean in the context of the situation? When it comes to, I'll do the nonverbal behavior first, we're familiar with many of these, from the fidgeting to the breaking eye contact to the change in breath rate and all of those things. For most of, for all of those things, when a behavior changes is more important than what behavior changes. So instead of looking for, are they looking to the right or left? God, just get rid of that one entirely for right now until we can coach what that really means and the value we can really get from it because it's not truth and lie. But are they fidgeting with their hands? Are they changing their posture? Are they crossing their arms? If somebody crosses their arms across their chest, that doesn't necessarily mean they're defensive. People typically cross their arms for two general reasons, physical discomfort or emotional vulnerability. Do they have a bad back? Does the chair suck? Is the room cold? Is it a woman who feels like the man interviewing them is being a creep and getting in her space during the interview? These would all be reasons for somebody to close up. Emotional vulnerability. If we don't think it's for any of those reasons or that those family of reasons, if it's emotional vulnerability, don't just look at the arms crossed. Look at what the face says. There's a We used to video record all of our interrogations, and one of my favorite videos to teach was one that one of my teammates did, where right before a guy confesses to stealing a quarter million dollars from his company, he was their chief accountant, he crosses his arms. Literally, I would have my finger on the pause button, because every week when he crossed his arms, somebody in the room would go, oh, you lost him, oh, he's defensive, oh, you almost had him, and I would pause it, and because I'm born with an affliction of sarcasm, I would look at whoever that person was and say, Do you have your wallet on you? Because all they saw was the arms. They missed the giant exhale. They missed the dipping of the head. They missed the fact that he had one foot flat on the floor and one tucked under the chair, and both feet went flat on the floor. All of this behavior speaks to capitulation. He's emotionally vulnerable at the moment. He's rationalizing, giving us the information. But because someone just looked at the arms, they feel he must be closed off. So what does the face say? Are they debating? Are they angry or defensive? Are they giving in? Are they about to give us the information we want to know? So that's another myth that's probably worth dispelling. Generally for me, if I can see their feet, I want to see if their feet are pointed in my direction or pointed away. I want to see if their shoulders are parallel to mine or pointed away. Those can be kind of general postural indications. On the nonverbal side, you know, we already mentioned some of them do their volume change, speed of delivery change, pauses change? A long pause isn't always a bad thing. If you ask somebody a difficult question to answer, they should pause. A short pause is a problem if we ask them a difficult question and boom, they answer it. But clearly they've been preparing for that. So the pause could be a problem either way. I will say this. My favorite thing to listen for is when somebody starts to say a word or a phrase, stops themselves in the middle of it, and then changes it. Generally, if I catch that, and I can only be catching that if I've limited my internal monologue and I'm really focused on them. If I'm looking at my list of questions, I'm never gonna catch this. Never is an awfully strong word. It's gonna be a rarity that I catch it. But generally, if somebody starts to say one word, stops themselves, changes to another word or phrase that has similar meaning, essentially what that's going to clue me into more often than not is what they started to say is how they truly think or feel. What they changed it to is what they want me to think they're currently thinking or feeling. And around that, it's a pretty clear indication that they're likely engaging in impression management. It doesn't mean that they're lying. It means that they want to be perceived in a certain way, which can be critical intelligence for me to pick up on. Because now I can likely identify what they're really thinking or feeling, as well as how they want to be perceived, and then communicate with them based on how they want to be perceived to circle back and get the truth. But if we're looking at our list of questions, if we're acting as robots, if we're thinking about where we're going to go or what we're going to say next, those tend to fly right by us and we don't catch them.
1: You talk a lot about all of those elements in your book, The Discipline Listening Method. And two of the things that you explicitly pointed out to us before we got online today that you would have loved to have talked about were both strategic observation and persuasive inquiry. How much of what you just described in terms of picking up on cues, those sorts of things go into the concept of strategic observation that you teach about in the book?
2: Thank you for asking. It's a large component that ties in with the situational awareness. Uh, I guess, warning, personal opinion, pet peeve, short rant here. One of the things that doesn't just bother me, other people that I know, are when people teach reading body language like it's a hack, like it's a shortcut. Like all you have to do is see this one thing and now you know and, and you can win. When in reality, the real value of observing these nuances of somebody's communication comes with understanding the context of the situation that it's all happening in and it does take additional cognitive resources to do it and to do it right it's not a shortcut it's actually a long cut but the outcome and our ability to empathize and identify and identify with people and adapt our approach changes substantially once we allow ourselves the opportunity to do that so it really is a big piece but it's that combination of situational awareness and evaluating the communication at the same time, they, they really do tie together. And then that sets up the persuasive inquiry. Questions can be perceived as invitations or attacks. I don't know how many people grew up in our country, it's the only one I can really speak to, with any depth of experience thinking, you know what, I'm really looking forward to getting questioned by lawyers, hopefully under oath somewhere, with plenty of witnesses around, maybe a recorder of some sort, And I'm really looking forward to getting asked a lot of questions as rapidly as possible so I can answer them in as much depth and honesty and emotion as I can summon. Like, nobody grows up thinking that. So realizing that the people we speak to, and honestly, even our own clients, I say are, like I'm an attorney, even the people that hire us to represent them, to a degree, they can be more motivated to withhold information with us than share it. I'm sure any attorney with any type of length on their resume has had clients that they thought told them the whole story and didn't find out until it, it was too late that they didn't because there were components that would have reflected negatively on them. So not falling into the entitlement trap, not assuming because somebody's under oath or because I'm representing them that they're going to give me the truth in the whole story. That, those things have nothing to do with telling the truth. And taking an approach that helps people save face, protect their self-image, and asking those questions in a way, and I know we've talked about this before, where yes, those strategic elements So we are walking down a road. Sure, that's very important, but also in a way that helps them save face and protect their self-image. So they don't feel like they're complying and being forced to share information, but they actually have some idea ownership in the process and they're choosing to share the information as well. As I was reading the book and thinking about
1: getting ready for the podcast today, I kept thinking about this recent deposition that I took up at Well, I won't say where it was, but the witness that I was going up to depose was an expert. So they're hired to come in and answer the questions, right? Like they know they're coming in and they know that their responsibility is to espouse for me what their opinions are during the course of that deposition. This guy walks in. He's got a cup of coffee in his hand. He's 10 minutes late for the deposition. And he looks at the court reporter and he says to the court reporter, when I say yeah, you type Yes. And the court reporter looked at me like, can he make me do that? I was like, I'm sorry, doctor. But the role of the court reporter is to take down verbatim everything that gets said here in the room. He goes, well, yes sounds more formal. It makes me sound better on the transcript when they type yes when I say yeah. And I said, well, how about you say yes, and then you'll (laughs) sound better on the transcript. And then he looks at me and he goes, well, that'll be fine. But if you're here to waste my time today. If you start asking me where I stopped to get this cup of coffee before I came in this room, we are not going to get on well together. And I thought, okay, I could be, I could take this very personally and respond in a very emotional way and be like, okay, I'm going to show this Mm -hmm. exactly how this is going to go. But instead, I just, I backed up and I just said, you know what? I tend to be very efficient. And I'm not one to waste a lot of time so long as we have a good way of communicating with one another today. I think we'll get through this just fine. And even the lawyer on the other side had already saw what was coming. And he was like, yeah, you know, Sarah's okay. She's not one of those who, you know, wastes a lot of time on stuff. And ultimately, we were able to get actually quite a few concessions out of the expert during the deposition, probably because I didn't rise to the bait. And get pissed off at him right from the very beginning. So I I really got straight to the point. I spent almost no time on his qualifications other than to say, we've gotten your resume. Is it still accurate? Jumping right into the substance so that he felt like I was actually doing what he wanted me to do as opposed to what I probably would have done anyway. <laughs> but it is, you know, I mean, I do think that it's just so important that context and understanding how to manage people in those situations. I just thought your book spoke to that so much as I was going through it. And it does then lead to that kind of the persuasive inquiry. Once you know where they're coming from, it does help you kind of set up your line of questioning. What other kind of really big takeaways would you hope people to get from reading the discipline learning method or listening method? Sorry.
2: I think your story is a great example of this. People interpret how we communicate with them as proof of how much we respect them. So if you rose to take the bait in that situation, now we're in a fight. We can't win. Like We literally can't. So we're compromising respect. We're compromising the relationship, all of those things. But Because I didn't like that somebody tried to establish himself as being in control. I think we're in an agreement on this. Great. Now I know your role. And now that I know the role you want to play, I can use that to get what I need. It's like, so thank you for declaring so early in the conversation and making this easy for me. So it works to our advantage. I think another sort of conceptual thing to throw out is that time is the enemy of empathy. So when we get back and we think about patience, if somebody feels rushed, they're not going to open up. The more pressure they feel like they're under, the more they're going to batten the hatches to protect themselves. And at the same time on our end, the more we are subconsciously driven by the ticking clock, I've only got five minutes, I have another meeting in an hour, I've got someplace else I need to be, I need to wrap this up. Once those thoughts leak into our internal monologue, we don't realize it, but we're literally prioritizing ending the conversation by that time over acquiring the information or establishing the relationship that we really need to. So it's all about prioritizing quality. We talk about interviewing. We talk about acquiring information. If we want people to share information that at all puts them in a vulnerable situation, we need to take responsibility for their communication experience. It's not acceptable for us to say, well, that's a them problem. No, actually, this isn't an an us to me problem. (laughs) If I need information from somebody to be successful and they refuse to give it to me, and that is at all a result of how they feel I'm communicating with them, then that's on me. So it's not about doing what I want to do. It's about setting out to create the communication experiences that other people need to choose to share the information that we want. Awesome ba um bum
0: Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so it sounds like we have so many keys for our listeners to kind of take away from this conversation. It's it's a lot to cover. So I want to make sure that we mention that all the information about your book, where you can buy it, um, and the information that's available online will be in our show notes. I love the discussion. You know I love the discussion because I keep inviting you places to talk about what you do because I love it. And I think it really has the potential to really improve the skills of of lawyers whose job it is to ask questions and get answers. You know, whether you're a courtroom lawyer or you're doing internal investigations or you're a DA or a U.S. attorney, whatever the case may be, it's just, I find the skills to be incredibly important and something that can be learned.
0: And counterintuitive, you know, like somewhat counterintuitive to your own natural human tendencies. So helpful to us for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, Trisha, verdict. Verdict? Yeah, I thought we were doing closing arguments.
1: I thought I just did.
0: <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know, verdict. I think we should insert a shameless plug for this book. Mr. Reddington, would you like to insert a shameless plug?
2: I appreciate it. Thank you. Only because of the invitation. So, it is called The Discipline Listening Method. Thank you, Sarah, for holding it up. How a certified White. <laughs> How a Certified Forensic Interviewer Unlocks Hidden Value in Every Conversation. It can be found on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And if you look, if somebody's interested in learning more before they purchase, they could just go to disciplinelistening.com and, and preview it there. Awesome. It's
1: great to see you. And for our listeners, please share, subscribe, download, and send questions or comments to trying to win at linkender.com. And we look forward to seeing everybody next time. And Michael, we look forward to seeing you again sometime in the future, and hopefully not remotely.
2: I'm looking buy forward the
1: book. to it.
0: Please. <laughs> and thank buy you the book. for the and yeah, by the book. Thank you
2: for the invitation. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. All right. Take care. Safe
1: travels. Yeah.